Well, as I say, it's wonderful to see you all, and that's just because it's a matter of getting together with old friends. But I know that the reason why you're all here is because of a common love. What has drawn you here now is because you all love our Lord, His faith, and His church. And that common love is the one bond that supersedes all other bonds. It's a bond of grace, a bond of sanctifying grace. It is the bond not just of merely human blood, but even divine blood, the blood of our Lord shed for us on the cross. And we should remember this when we listen to the speakers who stand before you here in the next uh, 48 hours or so. Your objective in being here is to love more. We want to love our Lord more and his faith and his church. We all have to aspire to love him with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength because only when we do that finally have we fulfilled the first great commandment. That is something we are ultimately going to accomplish in heaven with the beatific vision to love God with all of our powers of loving. But here on earth we aspire to that. And that's what makes us children of Mary because she is the only mere mortal human being who ever succeeded in loving God in this way, completely, with all of her powers to love. You and I aspire to it, we pray for this grace, and we labor for this, knowing that if we persevere, God will see that we are serious, we do want to love him more, and God will provide the grace that we, we ask for so ardently. So, uh, I ask you uh, during the prayers that we offer during this time, make it like a retreat. Uh, during Holy Mass, enter into the spirit of the Holy Mass, which is the sacrifice of Calvary made present on the altar right there, right then, and strive to pray, to devote yourself to giving our Lord your attention and your affection when you pray, because it is primarily during the prayers, even more so than during the talks here, that we express our love for our Lord. So do, do strive to put aside all other worldly concerns during the rosary and during the masses, and really do try to pray with all of your attention and all of your devotion. Our speakers are going to tell you many interesting things, many inspiring things, some of these things will involve uh, harsh realities of the world, but all of these will be in the context of the kingship of Christ and the rebellion against his the rebellion against his dominion in the world. So look at all these things not merely as political realities, but rather as spiritual realities. Why does Our Lady tell us we must pray the rosary so devoutly? Why does she tell us that this is the key to peace? It is because the battle is ultimately a not against bureaucrats or errant politicians. It is really against principalities and powers. There are spiritual forces active in the world today which are behind the scenes.
And there is no human arm strong enough and no human mind brilliant enough to withstand them. The only power that can withstand them is the power of God and the power that he gives to his saints, above all, Our Lady, and the power that he gives to his angels. And that is what we invoke when we pray the rosary. It is precisely because of the very humility of the rosary that it is such a powerful prayer. Well, we need to keep that in mind at a forum such as this, because sometimes we hear things that are rather dis disturbing, perhaps even a bit depressing, a little discouraging, but only for those who forget that Christ is already victorious. He reigns victorious. And it is only our prerogative to share in his victory or to lose. And so all that is said to you during this conference, these conferences, should always uh, arrive in your mind and your heart with that understanding that uh, we may be talking about things that are going on in the world and our only interest in these things is what you and I can do to serve our Lord Jesus Christ more faithfully more devotedly in meeting the challenges of the day I in invite Mr. Mullen now, Patrick Mullen, to come to the podium to introduce our main speaker this evening, uh, Dr. Charles Rice. God bless you. I'd like to thank Father Jenkins again for his continued support and his edifying remarks. Father, we're very appreciative on behalf of Catholic Men for Christ the King, Vexillourageous Association. Father is our our director has been for many years. Welcome you all to the 2002 Roman Catholic Forum. We are very privileged to have as our opening speaker this evening the very distinguished Professor Charles Rice of Notre Dame University. Dr. Rice is Professor Emeritus of Law at the University of Notre Dame School of Law and visiting professor of law at Ave Maria School of Law in Ann Arbor, Michigan. His areas of specialization are constitutional law, jurisprudence, and torts. Professor Rice received his undergraduate degree from the College of the Holy Cross, his Juris Doctor from Boston College of Law, and his LLM and JSD from New York University. He served in the Marine Corps and as a, as a Lieutenant Colonel retired. However, he reminds me that once a Marine, always a Marine, so we do not say former Marine or ex-Marine. In addition to being an editor of the American Journal of Jurisprudence, he is a member of the governing boards of Ave Maria School of Law, Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio, and the Eternal Word Television Network. Among Dr. Rice's several books are 50 Questions on the Natural Law and his latest, The Winning Side, Questions on Living the, Cultural, the Culture of Life. This evening we are very proud to have Dr. Rice present to us the presentation, Catholic Foundations of Good Government, from Magna Carta in the Middle Ages to the United States Constitution. We're very privileged to have, and would you please give a very warm welcome to Professor Charles Rice. Thank you very much. That uh, 
I appreciate the introduction. Uh, you left out two of the books, Gone with the Wind and War and Peace. Uh, but it's good to be here. I, uh, uh, I was invited by Don Julius, who is uh, uh, somebody with whom I go back a long time. So when Don asked me to come, uh, I said, uh, yes, sir. And uh, it's really good to be here. Very uh, happy to be here. It's a uh, this is a great time for us as Catholics. It really is. Uh, think of the great things that are happening. Uh, Notre Dame is five and zero. Oh. Uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, prospects. A lot of a lot of good things. I'm not going to talk at you for a long time, and I'm not going to give you a lecture on law. I have a strict time limit. Pat uh, told me that I have to finish by 10 o'clock. And uh, <clears throat> by my uh, Indiana watch, it's 25 after 6. Uh, so uh, uh, things will work out. The uh, Constitution uh, was adopted, and there were two philosophical strains that were at work. One was the traditional natural law of the, uh, you know, the Augustine, Aquinas, the common law, the whole common law tradition. Magna Carta, the Petition of Rights, the English Bill of Rights, and all this. And this, uh, this was one tradition which recognized objective truths, right? And it was based on, uh, derived from God. And you had uh, Catholic influence there, of course. Bellarmine, for example, 1642, 16, 1521, something like that. Uh, great Jesuit cardinal. Fought against the divine right of kings, all right? You know, the divine right of kings was the idea that God anoints this one guy and he is the king and he's got total power that's not the Catholic view what, that, what Bellarmine did was to apply what Augustine and Thomas had said that is that the state derives its authority from God and it's subject to God's law but the people as they choose to do it decide who will exercise that authority. That's why you can have different forms of government. So you have an aristocracy, a monarchy, democracy, whatever. And the uh, founders were influenced by both that and the Enlightenment, which I'll talk about in a minute. But there's a case. <clears throat> there's a case in uh, 1798 it was called Calder against Bull and it uh, <clears throat> involved a uh, Pennsylvania statute that was claimed to be an ex post facto law you know what that is that's a law that is retroactive and the Supreme Court held in this case that the only law that would be void as being ex post facto, the Constitution forbids those laws, would be a criminal law. And this was not. This was a civil law. 
And Justice Chase, Chief Justice Chase, wrote an opinion and he said, even if the Constitution did not forbid that kind of law, if a legislature enacted it, it would be void because of the natural law. And they got into a big argument. And Justice Iredell wrote an opinion, he said, natural law, you can't use natural law because, and I quote, the best and the purest minds have differed as to what it means. The interesting thing is that Iredell was alone. He was the only one on the Supreme Court who took that position. That was not the dominant view. The dominant view was that traditional view that there is objective truth, that it comes from God, and so on. But Iredell's position became the position that dominated over the years. And uh, I, I have to, to say that uh, when we talk about the Constitution, that you got to realize uh, that uh, there's death. It isn't there anymore. And what has happened uh, you know, is that uh, a change over the years, let me just kind of explain it as quickly as I can. Uh, it started out with the U.S. Constitution as the first time in the history of the world that a government had ever been created with only delegated limited powers. Magna Carta, all those other things were limitations on the otherwise unlimited power of government. But this was the first time ever in the history of the world that anybody had ever created a government with only limited powers. And the states retained all the other powers. He had the Bill of Rights, which applied only against the federal government. And that's all changed. To make a long story, very long story, I hope very short. What happened was that after the Civil War, you had a nationalizing trend. And 1913 was a bad year. Because you had the 16th Amendment, which gave Congress unlimited power to tax incomes. And then the 17th Amendment made senators elected by popular vote. Prior to that time, senators were elected by state legislatures. They were kind of ambassadors from the states. And the problem was that in some cases they bought the legislatures. There was bribery. So they made the senators popularly elected. And when you put the 16th together with the 17th, what happened was that Congress got the power to tax the income of the people to buy the elections, to bribe them with their own money. And then also in the 13th Amendment, Congress gave up its constitutionally delegated power to control the money supply by creating the Federal Reserve. Then you had other developments, you know, wars, 
depressions, all that. The Supreme Court expanded Congress's commerce power. You know something? Uh, have you ever, have you ever had a Kool Aid kid with a Kool Aid stand outside the house? You know. Now, Congress has the power to regulate the price that kid charges because that affects commerce, you know that? Why does that affect commerce? Why do you think? Huh? It what? No, 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 no. It affects interstate commerce. He's right there in front of his house. He's selling Kool-Aid. Right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or if it was homegrown, they used insecticide from another state. Or the cups came from another state. Right? Then the, yeah, I mean, Congress has the power to regulate anything that affects interstate commerce. Then the Supreme Court interpreted the General Welfare Clause. The, the General Welfare Clause, uh, I don't want to get into the details, is a clause that gives Congress the power to tax and appropriate money for the general welfare of the United States. Now that's the first clause in Article 1, Section 8, which enumerates Congress's specific powers. And the Supreme Court held in 1936 that general welfare is not limited to those specific powers, but it's whatever Congress decides is for the general welfare. Essentially, that's what they ended up saying Congress could do. So that's the reason why you have the grant and aid programs where Congress can regulate anything where there's a federal subsidy involved. And the basic natural law principle there is that there's no such thing as a free lunch. So you, you have wide areas of a life that are regulated by Congress because they take money. Colleges. All these things. Uh, maybe this hotel. Then the Supreme Court that's the division of powers. You see, what happened was all the powers went uh, moving toward the federal side. And within the federal government, the, the initial constitution set up a separation of powers among the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And that's all uh, changed. So the Supreme Court has taken uh, truly supreme power and so is the executive in some respects, in terms of the war powers and all the rest. So the Constitution isn't there anymore. Let me give you one example. The uh, Bill of Rights is a, and I'm going to get off this legal stuff. The, the Bill of Rights initially did not apply to the federal government, to the states. It applied only against the federal government. States didn't have to comply with it, but they had their own constitutions which said the same thing, but it was not federal. The Supreme Court, after this, the Civil War, and specifically starting in, 1920, in the 1920s, 
began to interpret the 14th Amendment so as to make the provisions of the Bill of Rights applicable against the states, not just the states, but every state and local government. And, that's, and then what the court did was to interpret that Bill of Rights so as to create new rights, such as the right of privacy, which was the basis of the abortion decision. And they reinterpreted existing rights. So you got the school prayer decision. And you got the case that says that a high school football team can't kneel down and say a prayer voluntarily before a game. Right? Why? Because that violates the First Amendment. <laughs> the best answer to that was uh, <laughs> it was good. One of the coaches uh, said, hey, listen, I don't care what those guys say. With this team I've got, there's no way I'm going to send them out there without a prayer. And, <laughs> and he had the right idea. But you get the picture. See? Criminal procedure, everything, is regulated on the local level by Supreme Court decree. So the Constitution is not there anymore. Don't kid yourself. It is 4th of July. Yeah, that's great. But uh, it isn't there. And why did it disappear? We still, it's still there in a sense that we can use it to keep the try to keep the government off our backs while we're trying to build a culture of life. But why did it fall apart? Why do you think it fell apart? People just didn't care. To a great extent, that's true. The kind of said people didn't care. Well, they care maybe, but there was a cultural thing. The law and culture are related. See, and, and here's where it, where it really gets down to the meat of what we're supposed to be talking about tonight. The changes in our constitutional system, the uh, changes in attitude are a result of the uh, the working out of that other strand that existed at the time of the Constitution. That is the Enlightenment strand. Right? And what is that? Well, it's it's the effort to build a society without God. Give me an example. You heard about Madeline Too Good? You know who she is? Yeah. She put Mishawaka on the map. All right? That's where I live, Mishawaka. Mish yeah, wait, wise guy? Yeah, Mishawaka. What? what? What's the matter? <laughs> Mishawaka, Indiana. Yeah. They had a video where she was leaning into her car and going like this and and her four-year-old was in there, right? And it electrified the whole country. And uh, Dr. Laura put the phone numbers of the two judges on her website because she thought they set the bond too low. 
these guys are good guys. Uh, these two judges, and Jerry Freeze particularly, he was the one who set the bond. He said it ten times the usual because of the transient character of the person. Uh, but Dr. Laura said, had people calling these judges, all right? And everybody went nuts. They went berserk. As it turned out, and then the prosecutor who was running for office filed a felony charge and demanded a $50,000 cash bond, all right? Normal bond is 500. And Judge Freeze made it 5,000. Everybody went crazy. As it turned out, if you look at the video closely, you can't see what her hands are doing. She was slapping the kid and pulling the kid's ponytail. As it turned out, the kid was not injured. She's now back. They <coughs> gave her to their her grandmother. All right? And the whole thing is kind of, I think, probably petering out. But what's the, what's the lesson here? Everybody went ballistic <coughs> over this video that showed child abuse. All right? And you know, that if Madeline Toogood really had it in for Martha, her daughter, her problem was that she waited too long. It was five years previously. On the day when Martha was born. If she was born feet first, her head is still in the cervix. She could have hired a professional killer to come and put a scissors into her head, widen the opening, put a suction tube in there, suck out her brains. And Madeline Toogood would not have been a criminal. She would have been a person exercising a privileged constitutional right. And you know something's wrong? Yeah. I'll tell you what's wrong. The Enlightenment as it says, the effort to build societies that God doesn't exist. And the only entity that is, there are only two games in town here. One is this culture of death and all its minions, and the other is the Catholic Church. But the Enlightenment has three premises. There's secularism, relativism, and individualism. What do you mean? Secularism is the idea that there's no God. They, it is a basic premise. I mean, you see, the Supreme Court has said the government cannot even affirm the existence of God. Government has to be neutral between theism and non-theism. So it's unconstitutional for a public official to state as a fact that the Declaration of Independence is true when it says that four times that there's a God. And this is all stupid. See, we, we tend, as Catholics, we tend to be in the bomb shelters, and we shouldn't be. Because we're on the winning side. We really are. And we got the answer. Not because we're smart. But the answer to all these problems is in the moral and social teachings of the Catholic Church. They say there's no God. Well, wait a minute. When you talk about God, you're talking about the, an eternal being. Can you know 
with your head that there always had to be an eternal being? The answer is yes. How do you know? Because, you ever see the sound of music? Movie? Scene down by the lake? The guy proposes to Julie Andrews, suddenly she breaks in the song. She says, I must have done something good. There's a line in there written by Thomas Aquinas. His name is in the credits. Not really. And she says, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Remember, that's how you know. That there always had to be an eternal being. Because if there was ever a time when there was nothing, there could never be anything. Yeah. It's true. And you can go on to prove what the attribute, what the attributes of the eternal being are. Or the question of of design. You know, if you were walking along the beach and you saw the letter M on the sand, would you would you suddenly think to yourself, well, well look what the waves did? Huh? I mean, no, you wouldn't. You say, hey, who did that? Because you know somebody did it, right? Whitaker Chambers, anybody ever hear him? Who did he play for? Yeah? Who did he play for? Yeah, right. Whitaker Chambers, communist spy, the guy who exposed Alger Hiss. Talk about the event that started his change from communism. He said, I was feeding our little daughter in the kitchen, and in her high chair, and she had cereal smeared all over her head. And he said, I looked in her ear, and he knew what the structure was inside the ear and all that, three little bones and all that. And he said, and it hit me. He said, that did not just happen. Somebody designed that. He said, I tried to put it out of my mind, but I couldn't. And that was the beginning. Secularism makes no sense. And the second premise of this culture that we're living in is relativism. You know, the universities, we got them in Notre Dame. We don't have any at Ave Maria. <laughs> we got them in Notre Dame. We got them at Georgetown. We got them everywhere else. Universities are full of professors who are absolutely sure that they can't be sure of anything. It's true. Yeah. And relativism is absurd. But you see, what it what it leads to is this: uh, you've got two views of the law. One is that the law is subject to a higher law, the human law, a knowable natural law. And you can't have a law without a lawgiver. And the lawgiver of that is God. And the other view is called legal positivism. The leading exponent of that in the 20th century was an Austrian named Hans Kelsen. And he said, philosophical relativism is the way to go. Because that leads to democracy. 
He said, if you think you know what's right or wrong, you're a philosophical absolutist, and that leads to tyranny because you want to enforce that on others. And he misunderstood. He, uh, he specifically criticized Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas. I mentioned Thomas Aquinas here, here, by the way, because you may not know it, but he was a graduate of Notre Dame Law School. Uh, what? Uh, I had him in, uh, in torch. Very hardworking kid. He got, he got a B. Uh, but he said, Kelson misunderstood Thomas because Thomas said the law should not try to enforce every virtue or forbid every vice. But you see what, what Kelson's theory was is this, and this is Oliver Wendell Holmes too, who thought the truth is the majority vote of the nation that can lick all others. And the view is this, that, uh, that justice, Kelson's, this is a quote, says justice is an irrational ideal. Nobody can know with his head what is right or wrong. Nobody can know what is just or unjust. So therefore, if we enact the John Extermination Amendment, and we're debating it, and you stand up and you say, you stand up and you say, that's unjust. The proper positivist response is stop emoting. Because that's just a feeling, you see. And the result is that whatever law is enacted is valid and can't be criticized as being unjust. And Kelsen, to his credit, had the honesty after World War II to write and admit, he said, I got to admit, the Nazi laws were valid because they were duly enacted. And that's what's happening with Roe versus Wade. That's what's happening in our culture. Law is an educator. Part of the reason why the Constitution has gone down the tubes is because we've adopted the idea that whatever the court says is not only something they can enforce, but it's somehow morally right. So secularism, relativism, which leads to legal positivism. And the third thing is individualism. You see, Thomas, St. Thomas and uh, Bellman and all these others said the human person is social. What we're operating with today, and, and you can see this, is a, a completely different view of the human person. I don't want to bore you with this, knock you totally unconscious, but uh, it's important. They, it, it, it goes back to the social contract theory. And let me just very quickly. Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau propounded this theory that uh, there was a state of nature, a mythical state of nature. This is how all th everything began. There was a mythical state of nature. This is how the state began. A mythical state of nature in which persons were milling around. There were autonomous, isolated individuals. 
and then they got together to form the state. With Hobbes, it was because they were killing each other. With Locke, it was to get rights. Locke, however, said, whatever the majority says is okay. With Rousseau, it was to get the general will, which is not the will of the people, but the will of the sovereign, who can order you to die. But the people get together and by this social contract, they form the state. Now, watch. See, under the Christian position, Judeo-Christian position, the state derives its authority from God. Right? Under this, uh, vertically, under this theory, which is what is dominant today, the state derives its authority horizontally from the people. And if the people give you your authority and your rights, they can define them. So if you got your rights through the social compact, we can change it. And you got no complaint. The second aspect of that is that the person is totally isolated. Aristotle, Augustine, Thomas, Aquinas talked about the person as being social by nature. These guys don't. What they say is that, that the person is sociable. He can be made social by his consent. And here's the point. Please try to keep this in your head. That the only relation that anybody has with anybody else is that to which he consents. That's the origin of pro-choice. Planned Parenthood didn't think it up. Nothing is new. And the theory here is that people are related to others only to the extent that they consent. So that the mother does not have any intrinsic relation to her child that she's carrying unless she consents. The husband and wife have no continuing relation to each other unless they consent, you see? That's why everything is so goofed up. There's nothing new, see? And it, it is really a great time. It's a great time to be their age. It's too bad they're not going to stick around. Uh, beyond tonight. But, you know, it's a great time to be around. You know why? Because the only answer is in the teachings of the Catholic Church. What's your name? Adam. Huh? Adam. Adam. Okay. Ramon, you go out to the parking lot. You see Adam with the hood of his car up. You say, Adam, what are you doing? You're standing there. He's holding the cans, two cans, molasses and oil. All right? And you say, Adam, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to make up my mind which one to put in my car. Now, if you're a friend of his, what would you say? If you're a real friend. Would you, would you ask him, would you say, well, Adam, how do you feel about it? 
<laughs> Would you? Huh? You wouldn't say that. Now, you know what you say? You say, hey, Adam, you should do good by your car. And the good is that which is in accord with the nature of the thing. Oil is good for cars, molasses isn't. And Adam says, yeah, but this is a Chevy. Does that make any difference? Adam says, yeah, but who are you, wise guy? And you say, look, you don't believe me? Look in the glove compartment. Look at the manufacturer's directions, the manual. And he does. He opens it up. Page 14, it says in red letters, it says, use oil, never use molasses. Right? And he looks at you and he says, yeah, that's what it says. But who are they to push me around? It's my car. It's my body. It's my car. I can do what I want. So he puts the molasses in. He's very sincere. He's liberated. He's pro-choice. And he's a pedestrian, right? <laughs> right? Now, is he still free to drive his car? Really? No. He's not free to drive his car anymore. The manufacturer's directions, the it's all the Ten Commandments and the natural law are. What's the basis for rights? What's the basis for John's right? Why it's wrong for us to turn out his lights. Well, if he is just a material entity, he's going to be here for 70 years, and then he's going to die, and that's the end of it. Why can't we kill him? Now, the only basis for transcendent rights in John is the fact that he's created in the image and likeness of God, that he as a spiritual soul and is therefore immortal and he's got an eternal destiny that transcends the state think about it. every state that has ever existed or ever will exist has gone out of business or will go out of business every single human being who has ever been conceived will live forever that's why the person is the important thing. Really. And you, you, we have to look at this and, and think about it in those terms and not be afraid to talk about it in these terms. Because the, the only creating that, that God has done since the beginning has been the creation of each individual human soul. It's true. You put a couple of dogs together, the material forces operate, and you get a litter of puppies, right? But a spiritual soul can't come that way. Each individual spiritual soul, each individual human person is the product of a willed act of creation by God. And because there's no time in eternity, it's willed from all creation from all eternity. And somewhere here in Cleveland, 
Some little kid is probably being born right now. His life began about nine months ago. And you know, there's going to come a, a time when there's not going to be a Cleveland. There won't be a Washington, Paris, Rome. Won't even be a Notre Dame Stadium. It'll all be gone. And that little kid will still be alive. Look at that. You know, our obligation, as Mother Teresa put it, is not to be successful, is to be faithful. And trust God. There's a great Jesuit, let me just wrap this up. There's a great Jesuit, Father Walter Chizek, who was a, a tough guy. He was a uh, tough Pittsburgh guy, and he, uh, it's redundant. And he, uh, became a Jesuit. They went into the Soviet mission in 1938. In 1939, actually. That is, he, he was in Poland, and they ended up going into, he went into the Soviet Union as a priest, right? And he knew he was going to get hammered. And he did. He spent, I think, 23 years in Siberia. He wrote books about it. Well, two books. And he talked about this. Uh, think about this. He talked about the Lubyanka. He was in the uh, Lubyanka prison for five years in solitary confinement. And that's a place that's an antiseptic place. And he was in a, in a cell by himself that with the light always on. And they had a, a steel door with a little peephole in it. And the guards would prowl up and down, right? Then he would be taken down for interrogations. And he was in other prisons too. And he recounted at the decisive turning point in a way in his life. But he had this, this scriptural passage, you know, don't be concerned about what you're gonna say when they bring you before the governors. I will tell you what to say, you know that? And he was brought down for the critical interrogation. And it looked like it was going to be yield or lights out. And he went down, he's a tough guy. He went down to that interrogation, really primed for the fight. And he collapsed. He gave away everything. He signed whatever they wanted. He just gave in. He went back to his cell. He said, what happened? It was a decisive turning point. He ended up saying that to himself, what happened was I relied on Walter Chizek. I relied on my strength. I didn't rely on Christ. It changed his life. And he wrote in his book, he said, 
God's will is not hidden out there somewhere in the situations in which I find myself. He said, the situations themselves are God's will for me. He said, what God wants is an act of total trust. Demanding absolute faith. Faith in his existence, in his providence, in his concern for the minutest detail, and in his love protecting me. That's what we got to do. We are on the winning side. No kidding. And it's a, a great time for us to be here. It really is. I'm so glad to see Father Jenkins uh, talking about the rosary. October 7th was the Feast of the Holy Rosary. The Battle of Lepanto. Where the, the fleet, Christian fleet turned back the Turkish fleet. Against all odds. And in the cabin of the commander was the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And the Pope had all of Europe praying the rosary. That's the real stuff. And it, it really, really is, is true. The last thing I want to... Uh, I'll just tell you this last thing. There's a, uh, another prisoner... Captain Jim Mulligan, who is a an aviator, naval aviator in Vietnam, and he was shot down, and he spent seven years in communist prisons in the Hanoi Hilton and elsewhere. He's a cellmate with Senator Jeremiah Denton for a time, and. Uh, when he was there, he was a four-striped Navy captain. He was a big, you know, very important officer. Everybody knew he was there. And he used to go on hunger strikes. When the communists would torture the other prisoners, or when they were torturing him. And he knew that they didn't want a dead Navy captain on their hands. That would be embarrassing to explain. Navy captain is a, a colonel. And so he would go on these hunger strikes time after time. He said, the thing that kept me alive, that kept me going, was I would say the rosary. He said, I, 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 I would count the Hail Marys on the, bee, on the barbs, on the barbed wire. And he wrote this little prayer that he uh, uh, put in his book later and said Lord help me to get through this thing one way or the other no one else knows Lord but you and I know and that's all that matters he said right is right if no one's right wrong is wrong if everyone's wrong that's something we got to remember. we got to remember that we have the church, the mystical body of Christ, we have the vicar of Christ, and we have the mother of Christ. What else do we need? Besides an undefeated Notre Dame football season. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.